Please take your Bibles and turn to our text for this morning. First Corinthians, we continue. We are at that place. Chapter 15, we begin Paul's last uh, great topic of this letter. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. But before we go to the Lord and hear his word and that word preached, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his blessing upon the preaching uh, and the hearing of that word. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, our, our Heavenly Father, our eternal and merciful God, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, we ask that indeed you would open and illumine our minds that we would rightly understand your word and that our lives would be conformed according to it and that, not, that, that in nothing we do we would be displeasing to you. Grant to us your spirit that the pure light of resurrection morning might shine within our lives and make us children of light. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, the light of the world. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 15, I'll be reading uh, the first 11 verses. Please give your full attention. This is the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred Brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so also you believed. This is the reading of God's word. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Well, I wonder how many of you have seen in movies or in television shows that have to do with people who die and come back to life. Uh, this seems to be a, a common trend. Um, there are really many of them. And it seems strange to me that a culture that is so set against traditional Christianity uh, would, have, would be, so, would be also so enamored with this, this core aspect of Christianity, life from the dead. And every time they can, the secular uh, media trots out so-called scholars who want to tell us that the resurrection is an old story that used to be believed, but that we are more advanced now and we can, we can make sense of things without believing that anymore. But don't worry, they'll tell us politely. And they give concession, some concession to the Christian. You can still believe the Easter story, even though it didn't really happen. We can clearly see from this passage this morning that the early Christians thought no such thing about the resurrection. 
The Apostle Paul had a very dis- different belief regarding the resurrection that these mo- than these modern scholars of today. And that's because Paul got his information about the resurrection from the resurrected Lord Jesus himself and the teachings of the other apostles. These do- doctrines were not self-derived. They didn't come from Paul. And this morning we'll see, uh, as an outline of our text this morning, we'll see the truth of the resurrection and then the consequences of the resurrection. The truth and consequences of the resurrection. Because the resurrection most certainly happened. And it most certainly matters. There is nothing of greater importance to believe or embrace or trust than that Jesus secured victory for your life by his resurrection and his victory over death. The resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus rose. The resurrection is not optional. As 1 Corinthians goes on to tell us. And so as we move on again, as I said, to this last section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians... We will look at just that, the truth and consequences of the resurrection. First, the truth of the resurrection. Right? The resurrection really happened, it most certainly happened. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it really matters only because it really happened. It's only significant because it actually took place. And he'll go on to elaborate gloriously on the significance and the impact of the resurrection in the remainder of chapter 15. But before that, in verses 1 to 11, Paul gives us the truth of the resurrection. Why is that? It's because rejecting or denying the resurrection isn't just a modern thing. Even in Paul's day, there were those who rejected. They denied that the resurrection happened. Think of the teaching of the resurrection in the Bible and the rejection and the reaction to that teaching. When we look at the New Testament first encounter that we have of the word resurrection, we see that the first time it, 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 it occur, occurs is when Jesus is talking, remember, in Matthew 22 with a group of Jewish priests called Sadducees. And there we learn that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And they try to stumble him by asking him um, questions to, get, to tie him in knots. And so there were Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection. And if you turn in your Bibles back to Acts 17, we see also Paul is preaching to the gospel to the Greeks in Athens. And in Acts 17, verse 18, Acts 17, 18. So when Paul is in Athens, he says, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, that is Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he, Paul, was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And if you go over to verse 32, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, well, we'll hear you again about this. Right? So there are some who mocked Paul for preaching the resurrection. There were others who denied it altogether and tried to trip Jesus up. And even in earlier times, There were some who had strange views about the doctrine of the resurrection. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to watch out for those who are upsetting the faith of some because they have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection had already happened, therefore denying the resurrection of the body. And then in our text this morning, Paul is warning the Corinthians, some in the Corinthian church, 
were some people there within that fellowship who don't believe in the resurrection of the body. This indeed is the zenith. It's the high point that Paul's arguing in his discussion in this letter. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the resurrection again because some of them are rejecting the truth and the significance of that resurrection. And so Paul had to deal with people who struggled with this doctrine. And that rejection and that misunderstanding and that struggle is not a modern thing. And so we can thank God that he's given his word, given us his word to respond to various types of errors and objections to this very thing. And so let's look at verses 1 to 11, and we'll see what we can glean from this passage. And there we find again that the resurrection is truth, really happened, and therefore we have reasons for believing it. And this is a good text to remember. It's a good summary of the gospel, verses 1 to 4. Someone asks what the gospel is, and you... Uh, uh, get stumbled in your mind, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and the first four chapters give us a great summary of what the gospel is. And it says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you were being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's a good starting point. That's a good summary. So let's break it down a little more and see what we can glean. Uh, The first thing we see is that Paul says it is the gospel that he preached and that the Corinthians received. Right? I remind you of the gospel I preached, which you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. He's going to go on into a long discussion about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of Christ. But he first by saying, this is the gospel that I've already preached to you. I've already preached it to you, and it's the gospel which you've already received. It is the very gospel that saves your souls from judgment and punishment and everlasting destruction. It is not unimportant. It is not a joke. It is not trivial. It is all important. And so he's beginning a discussion about the resurrection, but he first talks about the gospel. I would remind you, right, remember, brothers, the gospel that I preached to you. If he didn't talk about the resurrection, why does he start with the gospel? It's because the resurrection is at the core, at the heart of the gospel. And you can't talk about the gospel without talking about the resurrection. The one entails the other. There's no resurrection, dear Christian. There is no gospel. There is no good news. The gospel, the good news is not good if there is no resurrection. You reject the gospel and you reject salvation. You reject the resurrection and you reject the gospel. That's how closely connected they are. And Paul wants these Corinthian Christians to remember, he wants to make known to them how vitally important what he is talking about is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the good news that Jesus preached. And so that's the first thing we see here. The resurrection is at the core of the gospel. And then secondly, we see that these essential elements of the gospel, uh, we see them in verses 3 and 4. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, again. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried It was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Right? Notice how Paul says that he received this teaching. Paul is saying, it didn't originate from me. I received it. You see, it says, you received. And then he says in verse 3, I also received. And he's stressing that he didn't invent this teaching. This doctrine wasn't originated, did not come from Paul. He received this doctrine. The apostles are teaching this doctrine. It is the Christian teaching, and it is of utmost first importance. As you are aware, the Apostle Paul wrote a large chunk of the New Testament. Two-thirds of it, indeed. These books are very early. These books are written before the Gospels. So even when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he speaks of the resurrection as something that is established. It is received truth. It is that very truth that Paul himself received. Paul didn't make it up. He received it. And it had been in place and believed and known and taught and preached before Paul became the Apostle Paul. And notice, look at verse 3. We see there that Christ, uh, uh, that Christ, uh, we see his death for sin is at the very heart of the gospel. Christ's death for sin is substitutionary. Christ died for our sins is substitutionary atonement. And this is at the core of the gospel. It cannot be eliminated from the gospel. There are many today who would claim to be Christian in Christ's church that would like to remove the substitutionary atonement aspect from the core of Christianity. One of the theological papers we had to write uh, in seminary, uh, we were required to write uh, a paper that interacted with some of these people who object to the substitutionary atonement of the gospel. We had to choose one of these um, uh, uh, writing partners, as you will, one of these people who were objecting to the substitutionary atonement and defend that teaching uh, the teaching of God's word against that anti-biblical view. And it can be shocking how many people object to that very thing, the atonement in general, but the idea of a substitutionary atonement is very off-putting for many. But what does Paul say? He's telling us that this is the gospel, and part of it is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It is a core and inalterable element of the gospel. The meaning of the death of Christ. And to deny that is to deny the gospel. Indeed, it is to destroy the gospel. But all of this, Paul says, is in accordance with the scriptures. All of these, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, are in accordance with the scriptures. The phrase is used twice there, in verse 3 and then in verse 4. And indeed, if we look at the whole canon of our Bible, the whole, uh, our whole, uh, all of our scriptures... They're organized in that way. There's the Old Testament is the preparatory word, and then there's the word in flesh comes and accomplishes, uh, uh, he brings the kingdom of God, and then the rest of the New Testament is an explanatory word. So it's preparatory word, the actual word, the events themselves, and then the explanatory word. All of this is in accordance to the scripture. And so Paul in this passage shows us the core elements of, of the gospel, and he shows us that the resurrection is one of those core elements. He says that if you reject the resurrection, you reject the gospel itself. And of course, this is why Paul goes on to say later in this chapter that if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection indeed did not happen, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins, and the dead, along with Christ, simply perish. And our hope is in this life alone. We are among all people, he goes on to say, 
to be pitied. It is a core element of the gospel. And if it did not happen, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Our faith is hopeless if the resurrection is not true. And so don't let anyone, brothers and sisters, try to tell you that the resurrection did not happen. And don't let anyone try to tell you that it doesn't matter. Nothing matters more than the truth, the veracity of the resurrection. Our very lives depend on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot stand before God by your own righteousness because you have none. We are horribly, desperately flawed. and We cannot be rewarded and claim reward based on our own merit. We have only deficit before the Lord. It is Christ who earned glory for us. It is Christ who secured your life by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. His resurrection is your life if you trust in him, if you rest in him, if you live for, from him and for him. And then th- thirdly, look at verses 5 to 9. There we read of the extensive witness to the reality of Christ's resurrection. We read of the witness of the reality of Christ's resurrection. He begins with Peter, Cephas, right, Peter, and then to the 12, and then the more than 500 brothers, some of whom, he says, are still living when Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. And he mentions James, and then lastly himself, as one untimely born. And Paul gives this extensive witness list to show us that many people could substantiate the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And let's remember God's word is self-authenticating. It doesn't need our approval. It It authenticates itself. It is its own authority above which nothing else stands. It is supreme and is our most properly basic belief. It is our starting point. We begin with the Bible's veracity. Why is that? It's because if we place anything else as our starting point, we place that thing above God's word. And we put that word in judgment of that thing, rather, that thing in ju- the judgment of God's word it is backwards. And if we don't affirm at the outset the truthfulness of God's word, we destroy reason. We have no ground to stand on regarding anything else. And so we read and we believe God's word when it tells us of all the witnesses to and the verifications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, our true and holy faith is not a faith that is a once upon a time kind of thing, right? We don't find that in the scriptures. It's not a fairy tale. It is grounded in history. It is rooted in history. It is emphatically historical. And the resurrection emphasizes the certainty of this historic event. And also remember, remember what we see when we consider these things, that there were many people in the time that this was written who could have and would have loved to contradict the resurrection were it not true. Paul is talking about the historic, factual event that was commonly known. It wasn't a secret thing done in the dark. It was a public event that changed the world. And Paul was simply making up stories and telling fables. He could have been simply refuted by these people who were alive at the time. And then fourth and finally... In verse 11, Paul goes on to tell us what he is saying. It is not something specific to Paul. I alluded to this earlier. It's what the apostles are teaching. It's, in fact, the common faith to the church of Christ. 
Again, look at verse 11. Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. He's saying that this is what all the apostles are preaching. Whether it was I or they, so we preach. And so what? He goes on. And so you believe. And the gospel goes forth and the spirit goes with it. And lives are changed. And the dead are given life in Christ. And the veracity and the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a doctrine, it is a truth that every Christian must embrace gladly, gloriously. It is not optional to the Christian faith. It is definitive of the Christian faith. And so we see from this passage truths regarding the resurrection. It really happened. It truly happened. It is truth. And we can believe it because it is the core of the gospel. It is according to the scriptures. The word of God teaches it. It is corroborated by witnesses. And it is the common teaching of the church. It is history. It is the apostolic deposit. Remember, Paul tells Timothy, this is what you teach. I'm handing this down to you, Timothy. It's that which is handed down because it's ultimately from Christ himself. And that's even what we see when we go to the Gospels. It's what Jesus taught the disciples before his resurrection ever took place. And the call of the Gospel isn't a call to commit ourselves to a fairy tale. It's what Jesus taught the disciples before his resurrection ever took place. It doesn't call you to place your faith in a myth. And even so with Paul, he's emphatic. He's not calling the Corinthians to base their lives on something that is make-believe, but it doesn't matter. He's not asking them to rest their lives on a sentimental crutch and an old world teaching or something to help them feel better. Something that doesn't matter as if it's not true. If it's true or not, that would be a wicked thing to do, brothers and sisters. And even today, it is a wicked thing to do. We see this in so many mainline churches that have abandoned the gospel and the authority of scriptures. It is all important. Because if it didn't happen, it doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If it didn't happen, it doesn't matter. But I'm telling you something this morning, dear Christian. As Paul told them, something that is more, more real, something that is most real, something that is not merely history, but something that is necessary to all of reasoning and all of thought. Paul says that there is no more real, no more certain thing than the resurrection. It is truth, and it has consequences. It is a foundational truth. Brothers and sisters, believe in the resurrection. Trust that the Savior, this is the one who gave his life and rose again from the dead to give you life, despite what the world around us tells us. Scripture says, let God be true, though every man a liar. And we trust him. Trust the word of God and flee from everything that contradicts it. The resurrection is too true. Praise God that it is true. And because it is true, it has its effects. Uh, there are results and consequences to the resurrection. Because it really happened, it really matters. And so we go on to the second part, the second point uh, in the sermon this morning, and that is, again, the consequences of the resurrection. The resurrection really happened, and the resurrection really matters. There are consequences to the resurrection. And Paul goes on in the remainder of this passage, and we will see uh, in the future, in the weeks to come, 
he talks about the consequences of the resurrection. But we'll look briefly at another of Paul's letters to discuss the consequences of the resurrection. Uh, we'll look briefly at uh, these four consequences and the four reasons why it really matters. And we'll look at these four passages uh, from the, the, the letter to the Romans. And so if you turn with Romans, turn with me to Romans, we'll look at, we're going to be looking at chapters 1, briefly, 1, 4, 6, and 8. Romans chapter 1, and we see that the resurrection proves Christ's deity. That's the first thing of this second <clears throat> big point in the sermon. Uh, we see that the resurrection proves Christ's deity. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he says there that Christ Jesus was declared the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Right? We see that the resurrection testifies to Christ's special role as a Messiah, the greater Son of David, and of Christ's exaltation, and ultimately of his deity. We know that he is who he said he is by his resurrection, the Son of God. And we say that he was the Son of God by his resurrection. We read in 1 Timothy 3.16 that Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit. Right? When was he vindicated in the Spirit? When he was raised by the Spirit from the dead. God gave an irrefutable testimony that his Son was divine. The divine living Son of God by the resurrection. And so that's the first point. The resurrection proves Christ's deity. And then secondly, we see that the resurrection provides our justification. The resurrection provides our justification. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. We see there that Paul emphasizes the resurrection is a testimony to the certainty of our justification. Right? The resurrection is a testimony to the certainty of our justification. Our redemption rests upon the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And so look at what Paul says in Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25. It says, He who was delivered up, uh, I'm sorry, he who was delivered up for our trespasses, right? Jesus was delivered over, betrayed, betrayed into the hands of his enemies, in order that he would suffer in our place for our transgressions. That's the first half of verse 25. He who was delivered up for our trespasses, Paul goes on to say, and was raised for our justification. And he was raised for the sake of our justification, for the purpose that we would be justified. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that which gets uh, for us our justification by grace. It is that which, gets, that which gets us forgiveness of our sins. It is that which gains forgiveness of our sins for us and gains redemption for us. And so Christ's resurrection assures us, us of our salvation. The resurrection is not an afterthought. It is absolutely essential to our salvation. That we would be saved, it is essential. And so the resurrection proves the deity of Christ, but it also provides for our justification. And then thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only points us forward to the resurrection at the last day, it does do that, but it's something that helps us day by day by day. Why? Because Paul teaches that the resurrection is the source of the new life that we live now. Not just in glory, but now as believers. 
The resurrection powers our new life. It powers our new life, even now. So look at Romans 6. Romans 6, uh, chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says this. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Not merely, it doesn't say as he was raised, you'll be raised. But it says what? As he was raised, you might walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is he saying? What's the differential, the distinction there? He's saying that our union with Christ by faith in resurrection provides us the source, the energy, the power, the grace to live the Christian life right now. It is glory brought forward, power for us to live and walk in newness of life, even now, dear Christian. This is one of the greatest distinctive aspects of the New Testament teaching about the Christian life. That we don't do it in our own strength, but we do it in the power of the grace of the living God. Where do you get that power from? It comes from your union with Jesus Christ, your union with your Savior in his resurrection. And it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you. It is at work in you now. The same power. That's a staggering truth if we think about it. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you who believe in him. It's staggering. Do you believe that? Do you trust that to be true? That's something to meditate upon this remainder of this Lord's Day, indeed for the remainder of our life. If you don't really believe in the resurrection of Christ or what the scripture says about that power, then you can't understand or believe that it's that same power that is at work in Christ's people. This is, though, what Paul is saying. If you embrace this truth, the truth has consequences, dear friends. And if you've not done so already, I plead with you even now, trust in this powerful Savior. Trust in Him for your life, for this life and the next. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good and true and loving and merciful and tender and holy. The resurrection powers our new life. And then fourthly and lastly, go to Romans chapter 8. Paul tells us that Christ's resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. His resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our resurrection. Look at chapter 8, verse 11, Romans 8, 11. The apostle emphasizes this glorious truth. He says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right? The spirit of Jesus dwells in you. And he is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So he will also raise your mortal bodies from the dead. Glorious promises. His resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. And so in all of these ways, Paul points to the importance, the significance, the imperative nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us as believers. In summary, the resurrection really matters. It has consequences because the resurrection proves Christ's deity. It provides our justification. It powers our new life. 
And the resurrection promises our resurrection. Believe it even now this morning. If you have believed it, embrace it again and afresh. It is a glorious truth. Because again, the truths and the radical ramifications of the glorious gospel are for our lives. Be assured in your hearts. Be comforted in your soul. Delight in your Savior. Many people would say that this doctrine is simply pie in the sky. Just wishful thinking. You may have heard that. But if God has granted you to believe, you know how far from the truth that is. It is not pie in the sky. Rather than being pie in the sky for the future, notice that much of what Paul says about the resurrection is about this life that we are living right now. We live the heavenly ethic of our true home, even in this pilgrim land. An important part of this, to be sure, is the future to come. But much of what he says about the resurrection is about right now. We all struggle. We struggle in sin and in pain and in death and brokenness in our bodies. Brokenness in our relationships, in our families. We are broken people in a broken world, a dead and dying hostile world. We're going to have pains and strains. Things are not as they ought to be. Sin has devastated God's good creation. And bad things happen to us and our loved ones. God's children suffer. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, none of it matters. None of it matters. None of it makes any sense. It is all for nothing. But praise be to God. Christ did rise from the dead. His crucified body was dead and laid in the tomb. And the pattern of his life, right, suffering and then glory, would be the pattern of his people's lives. Suffering and then glory. Praise God that he did rise from the dead to put things right. To put an end to suffering and death and dying and sin and mourning. Remember that glorious promise from the end of our Bibles that says, And then the sea was no more. And there was no more mourning or crying or death. What a glorious promise. And we can lay hold with sure confidence the promises of this truth only because Jesus Christ rose on the third day, resurrection morning. It's the most true thing that you could ever imagine. And therefore, because it is true, all of life has changed. Embrace the one who was raised on that day. Dear friends, embrace him. Trust for your life that Jesus, who rose from the dead, from the grave on the third day, we are so slow to believe and weak and broken. But he is strong and he is mighty and he is powerful and he is tender to receive all those to come to, that come to him in faith. He will not cast you out. And in him alone there is life. There is no life outside of trusting and embracing this risen Christ. The resurrection is the essence of the gospel. It's what God's word teaches. And it is witnessed then and is even witnessed now every time the Lord gives life to a dead sinner. It is definitive of what we are as God's people. And so may God grant you that change of life through the gospel. And may we continue to praise him for his work for our lives and for the grace and strength to continue to embrace him by faith again and again and even now. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray.
Our dear Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that would believe. And in fact, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. You've created faith in our heart. Continue to strengthen and increase that faith, we pray. Help us to rejoice and delight in the lives that you have given us. Help us to hope and even to thrive as your people, as those united to Jesus. Lord, help us to believe, help us to understand the significance and importance of this truth and that all of our life is based on it. For his glory we pray. Amen.